Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. If you've been with us, then you know that Jesus, following his resurrection, spent 40 days appearing to the apostles, convincing them of his resurrection, gave many convincing proofs, uh, verse 3 says, and teaching them about the kingdom of God. After 40 days, he ascended to heaven. But before ascending to heaven, he gave them instructions. One of them is recorded for us in Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the great commission. He's telling them to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. In Acts, we read this, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. So he's told them to go, but before they go, they're to wait. For the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He told them they're to go, but before they go, they need to wait because in their waiting, they would receive something that would empower them in their going. So for the next 10 days, the disciples, along with more than 100 other people, were in a room and they were praying. They were waiting. They didn't know how long they'd have to pray. They didn't know it would be 10 days. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. They just knew they were to wait until something happened. I say that because today we're going to be talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to be encouraging everybody watching online, everybody at the campuses, and everybody here today to be seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It will make a massive difference in your life. We'll talk about it in a moment. What trips a lot of people up is they say, I don't understand it. The good news is you don't have to. That's good. They didn't understand it. They didn't know. They didn't have any idea what was going to happen. We know more than they knew because we're reading about their experience. But this may be the first time you've ever heard somebody talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You may have heard people talk about it and talk about it in a way where maybe it, it caused you to think it's not for you or it's not something you would want. The fact of the matter is, Jesus wants not just the disciples, but he wants every single one of us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
What kind of power? The Greek word dunamis, we get our word dynamite, dynamic power, dynamite power, explosive power. That word power is literally defined for us 10 different times in the book of Acts as it talks about it. On two occasions, it has to do with a power that makes us bold in our witness for Christ. Bold in talking to people about Jesus. It's implied in this verse. You'll receive power of boldness and you'll be my witnesses. That word witness, we get our word martyr from it. You'll be they would go out and so share about Christ that in many instances it would cost them their life. The words became synonymous. To witness was to be a martyr. To be a martyr was to be a witness. What would cause somebody to be willing to lay down their life? Power. Power that would take you beyond yourself. Power that would give you a boldness so that you'd no longer have a fear of people. What is it that keeps Christians from fulfilling the Great Commission? What is it that keeps people from going across the street or around the block or, or in the cubicle next to them at work? What keeps them from sharing Christ? They're afraid. Fear of men, afraid of what people will think, afraid of what people will say, afraid they won't have the answers, afraid that they won't, they won't know how to respond. But Jesus said, you'll receive power, power to witness, power to tell people about Jesus when the Spirit comes upon you. And the other eight times that this is used in the book of Acts, this word power, it refers to miraculous power. Signs and wonders, miracles that happen, healings that happen. You'll receive supernatural power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I don't know what you've been taught about the Christian life, but it's not just about you getting saved and then waiting till you go to heaven. The Christian life is a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms you on the inside and empowers you to live a life that is supernaturally extraordinary. Christian life is a supernatural existence. We fix our eyes on heaven. We, we understand spiritual realities and we operate in a spiritual power that fulfills the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ when he taught the disciples to pray, saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The you and I would live the Christian life with a kingdom power that would bring the reality of what heaven is like to earth. This is a part of our call as followers of Jesus. The reason why we feed the hungry is because in heaven, no one is hungry. In the kingdom, people aren't hungry. The reason we, we pray for the sick is because in heaven, people aren't sick. The church has a responsibility to pray its way into heaven, to pray the power of heaven down to earth, that the will of God might be done. So I don't know what you've heard about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but I want to encourage you today that it is the gateway, it is the entry to a power that is supernatural, that will change your life and the lives of people around you.
at salvation, the Holy Spirit lives in you for your sake. He comes upon you through the baptism in the Holy Spirit for others' sake, that you might bring them to an experience and an understanding of God's power. Let's look at it, Acts chapter two, it's so exciting. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, the day of Pentecost, the word Pentecost, it's the idea of 50th, when the 50th day had come. Pentecost was actually a Jewish feast and it occurred 50 days after Passover, which is why it was called in the, in the Greek speaking world, it was referred to as Pentecost. When you read the Old Testament, you find that there were three, I wanna give you just a little background on it because a lot of the background on it has to do with the purpose of it today for us. In the Old Testament, there were three Jewish feasts that all Jewish men were required to attend. The first feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of First Fruits. It happened right after the Passover. So you remember Jesus died during the Passover uh, holiday or, or feast, and then there would be the Passover, and then the next day would start the Feast of unleavened bread, and they would celebrate it for seven days. The second feast they were required to attend was the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. All of those are names for that feast. The third feast would be the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, Sukkot is what the uh, Jewish people would refer to it by. Pentecost was a celebration of the harvest, of the ingathering. So when you think of the outpouring of the Spirit, what's the purpose? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. We're talking about a spiritual harvest where, where men and women, boys and girls from around the world would come to know Jesus Christ. Why? Through the empowerment. So the harvest or the feast of harvest in the Old Testament, the feast of Pentecost in the Old Testament, pictured was a type of that great harvest of souls being coming to know Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus in John 4 said, you know, don't say four more uh, months and then the harvest slipped up your eyes and look, the fields are ripe unto harvest. And he was talking about people coming to him out of this Samaritan village. Amen. The idea of world evangelism, that's what Pentecost is all about. He's going to empower them. He's going to send them out. He's saying go, but before you go, wait, so you have the power to bring in the harvest. Are you with me? A second aspect of the Feast of Pentecost or harvest was that it also celebrated the giving of the law, the, the old covenant. Remember on Mount Sinai, uh, Moses had brought the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and now they're camped out at the base of Sinai, and God himself comes down onto the mountain. In Exodus chapter 19, we read about it. Mount Sinai was smoked because God had come down on it as fire. So God comes down as fire. We're gonna watch in a moment on the day of Pentecost. What's there? Fire. Why? God's coming down. God is, is resting on individuals. It's fire. Whenever God comes, often there is 
fire associated with his coming. In this case, he comes down on this mountain and smoke poured from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain shuddered in huge spasms. So the mountain is shaking. There is a, it's like lightning and thunder and fire and smoke. You say, oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love to have seen it. <laughs> Moses, who had set out his staff over the Red Sea, it split. Moses, who did the 10 plagues under the power of God. Moses, who talked to God face to face as a man talks with his friend. This is what the writer of Hebrews says Moses thought. The sight was so terrifying, Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. I'm shaking as much as the mountain. When God visits his people, often there's fire. When Aaron and his sons were ordained as priests, there was fire. When David was making atonement for the people to stop the plague. Remember the death angel was over, over the city of Jerusalem ready to slay people. Already 70,000 had died and David offers an offering and he builds this altar where, where the temple would eventually set. And when he builds that altar and offers a sacrifice, fire falls from heaven. That same spot when Solomon, David's son, builds the temple and he offers an, an offering, Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. Often, God's presence is symbolized by fire. So on the day when God is going to empower his people, on the day when God is going to, to uh, have them operate in a new power under a new covenant, there is fire that shows up on the day of Pentecost. Let's look at it, Acts chapter two, verse one. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord. We talked about that when we were looking at Acts chapter two and, or Acts chapter one and verses 12 through 14, that, that phrase, one accord, it's, it's one word in the Greek, homothumadon. They all had one spiritual passion. They all had one spiritual temperature. They've been praying for 10 days. And during that time, the differences that existed at the start have dissolved. Remember the disciples used to argue over who's the greatest, all that's gone. Now there is a supernatural unity. Now they're all together. They're one heart, they're one mind. They're just asking God to pour out his spirit on them. Same passion, same temperature. Verse two says this, suddenly, without warning, without any notice, without somebody having a prophetic word, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Think of a tornadic wind. Ever talk to somebody who survived a tornado? Who sat through it, had it pass over them or near them? And you ask them, you say, what did it sound like or what was it like? They say it sounded like a freight train. So here they are, and as they're there, all of a sudden, there is like this tornadic wind, like a freight train, this huge sound that is in the place where they're at. As well, let me say this, that that idea of a sound accompanying God's arrival is not new to scripture here. In fact, all the way back in Genesis, you may not be aware of this, but in Genesis chapter three and verse eight, and they heard the sound 
of the Lord God walking in the garden. You'll read in verse 10 in Genesis chapter 3, there was a sound as he came looking for them. They heard the sound of him walking. We don't know what that sound was, but his arrival in the garden was marked by noise. Could have been trumpets. Could have been the sound of the cherubim coming down because Ezekiel, when he sees the, the glory of the Lord, uh, he, there's a, a sound that's like a Niagara of water. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That really is, is not the best translation. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the wind of the day is the literal. So in other words, there's this wind as he comes in to meet with them. There's this, this rushing wind and an accompanying sound. In Job chapter 38 and verse 1, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And, and again, whirlwind, we get the idea of kind of like a dirt devil or some little uh, whirly amount of wind that's going along. That's not the picture here. Uh, maybe better is tempest, tornado. Then the Lord answered Job out of the tornado, out of the storm, out of a massive energy of wind. So on the day of Pentecost, suddenly there was a sound like the blowing wind. And what I want you to notice here is not only are they hearing the sound, but the entire city's hearing the sound. Because in verse 6, we read this, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together. So wherever they're at, you say, what do you mean? They're in the upper room. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. The, the scripture says in the place where they were, we know this. We know that Peter is going to stand up and address a crowd and 3,000 people are going to get saved. And it's unimaginable to think that they could be in an upper room and have 3,000 people saved at the upper room. So either it came in the upper room, people gathered, they moved over to the temple, or they were at the temple at 9 o'clock in the morning, it tells us, is when it happened which would be the hour of prayer at the temple. So this group of believers went up like faithful and devout Jews would do into the temple courts to pray. And while they're there, there's this outpouring, this sound. And it's a sound that's heard not just where they're at, but is a sound that, that penetrates the city. Then when God begins to move in a place, it begins to spread out. It begins to capture the attention of a city. So here they are, and they hear this sound. Acts chapter 2 and verses 2 through 3, suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled literally the place where they were sitting. So were they in the upper room? Were they in the temple? It really doesn't matter. Either they moved from the upper room to the temple or they're at the temple. Then what looked like flames, God coming is fire. Maybe some scholars say a, a shaft of fire coming down and separating out on them. Tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Each of them have a manifestation of the 
Holy Spirit on top of their head. We're praying for revival. We're praying for God to sweep across this area. No human can manufacture a move of God. It comes when the Spirit of God grips people with a hunger for Him and empowers them with His presence in a way that carries the move of God out of a church and into the world. Can I just say that what we're seeing now, listen, you may be new, I've been here 30 years. I've never seen anything like we're seeing now. Where the presence of the Lord is moving. I mean, we're not, we're not having to try to find a story to tell you. We're having to choose from a number of stories which one to tell you. The Lord is moving in a way like I've never seen where people are being dramatically healed. And there's an increase of God's presence and God's power. I had somebody stop me outside the church. They were telling me the story about a family member who was sick and, and how they wanted to be healed. And, and they were asking what my thought was. I said, there's never been a better time to believe God would touch them and heal them. No matter what their journey's been, there is a rising tide. You can see it, you can sense it. God is stirring in so many ways. Last week, 127 people were saved. Is, is this, I'm trying to give you a sense of what he's doing. And what we're saying, listen, everything starts small and gets big. And what we're saying are the it's like a seed of revival has been planted. It's, it's like it's growing. I remember uh, growing up on the farm and going with my dad out to see, check on. They'd, they had planted the corn and he would dig through the dirt and he would see the seed as it started to swell. And then we'd go a couple days later and you'd see it as it started to come out of the, the kernel. The plant would start to come. And then you'd check a, a few days later and it was starting to put down roots and you would see it begin to break up through the ground. That's what we're seeing. It starts small but it's growing. I believe God has brought us to this point to get us ready for what he wants to do. His desire is for every single person who hears this message to not be a spectator, but to participate in something so powerful, so historic, so life-changing. You'll never forget it for the rest of your life. But beyond that, something that will radically transform the area. We desperately need revival. Interestingly enough, there have been times when fire has appeared during revivals. 1906, Azusa Street was the place of one of the greatest revivals in the history of mankind. Started in Los Angeles, the Assemblies of God was really birthed out of the Azusa Street revival, as were other denominations. 
An African-American preacher by the name of William Seymour arrived in Los Angeles on February 22, 1906. I mention his race because it's notable that at Azusa Street, in a day when, when America was, was very much divided, at Azusa Street, it was people from every walk and every race together in the presence of God operating as one. It was unique in the country. That's what revival does. Right. Yeah. William Seymour arrived in Los Angeles on February 22nd, 1906. He began to hold meetings in a small storefront church on Santa Fe Street. He was invited to hold a Bible study and prayer meetings at a house on Bonnie Bray Street. Seymour called for 10 days of fasting and prayer, and on April 9th, the power of God began to fall. God began pouring out his spirit so intensely that people started getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, and soon people were coming from everywhere. After three days, there was no way of getting near the house. As people came, they fell under God's power. You say, what does that mean? They, they hit the deck. The power of God was so strong. You remember in the, in, the, in the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, the glory of God fell on a place so strongly the priest couldn't minister. There is a manifestation of the presence of God so great that people are lost in his presence. This was happening at Azusa Street as people came, they fell under God's power and the whole city was stirred. The meetings moved to a mission on Azusa Street, the power of God again, so strong that creative miracles began to occur. Ears that did not exist formed in place. Arms that had been lost due to work accidents were reconstructed by the power of God. As the people prayed in the spirit, a literal fire would come out of the roof of the building, causing onlookers to call the fire department because the building looked like it was burning. But when the fire department came, the fire could not be put out because it was spiritual, not natural. Mel Tari writes of a similar incident in 1965 in East Timor in Indonesia. These are his words. I belong to the Presbyterian Church. We had everything in order. When we went to church, everything was written down on paper. The pastor read one part. We read the other part. We knew when to stand, when to sit, when to pray, when to sing. I really thank God for that. I appreciated the order in my church. When, the, when revival breaks out, order's gone. I don't care if you're Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening. When God begins to move, the order sheet goes out the window. I remember well that night of September 26, 1965, about 200 people of all ages were gathered at our church praying. As we were praying, suddenly something strange took place. That night, suddenly, the Holy Spirit came just as he did on the day of Pentecost. I heard this mighty rushing sound. It sounded like a tornado in the church. I looked around and saw nothing. I turned to my sister and asked, do you hear a strange noise? Yes, she replied, I do, but forget about the sound. We better pray. 
Then I heard the fire bell ringing loud and fast across the street from the church was the police station and the fire bell. The man in the police station saw that our church was on fire, so he rang the bell to tell the people of the village to come quick. There was a fire. In Indonesia, especially in Timor, we don't have fire trucks. We just ring the bell and the people realize there's a fire and come from all over the village with their buckets of water and other things to help put out the fire. When they got to the church, they saw the flames, but the church wasn't burning. Instead of a natural fire, it was the fire of God. Because of this, many people were saved and received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I cannot forecast what God will do, but there is a fire that is burning. And I would love it if there was a six alarm fire at every single campus of James River that could not be put out because it was the fire of the Holy Spirit. What I would encourage you to do, I don't want to scare anybody, but what I don't want you to do is to take the book of Acts as some historical account that means nothing to us today. The book of Acts simply chronicles for us the way the Spirit of God interacts with God's people. It tells us how he moves when revival's needed. It tells us that he does things that we can't explain that are supernatural in essence, in nature, in, and in, in evidence. I'm not trying to make something happen but I am hungry to see God do what I believe our area desperately needs, and I'm open to whatever it is that the Lord wants to do. There's times when we need wine, and there's times when we need bread. There's times when we need to eat the, the bread of the word, and we need the solid teaching. We've had that for 30 years, and we'll continue to have it, but right now, the, the Holy Spirit is moving through this place. He's doing something. I'm simply trying to open your heart and mind to the reality that God is at work and he's inviting you to be a part of it. He wants you to experience his power like you've never known it in your life like you never imagined it possible in your life. And he's stirring right now. He's moving. Acts chapter two, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them. Peter will say later in Acts chapter two, and I say this because there are some who because either of your teaching which has said, this is not for today, the gifts are not for today, miracles are not for today. It's a struggle for you to move into some of this because you're having to overcome teaching that honestly, though well-meaning, is incorrect. There's nothing in the Bible that says that the miracles have ceased. You know, people will point to uh, 1 Corinthians 13 and when the perfect has come then the imperfect will pass away and they'll say well you know the perfect is the word of God uh, you know listen it wouldn't stand up in context to interpret 1 Corinthians 13 that way 
The perfect is heaven. It's the eternal state. Because he goes on, Paul goes on to say, now I see in a glass darkly, then I shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I'll know fully, even as I'm fully known. Who could say they know fully, even as they're fully known? No one. Even with the word of God. There are mysteries in the word. We still don't understand, nor will we, until we're in heaven. All that to say, there's nothing in the Bible that says miracles are not for today. And to the person who says, God doesn't do miracles anymore, my question is, does God answer prayer? And if you're going to start dissecting which prayers God answers, that would become very, very frustrating. You and I were designed to hope for supernatural answers to the situations of our life. We were designed to hear God and we were designed to receive from him. Jesus said, ask and you'll receive. What? That your joy may be full. The reason why a lot of Christians don't have Christian joy is because they don't have the experience of answered prayer. I'm just simply saying they were all filled, all of them. Peter will say this gift is for you and all who are afar off. This is for everyone. We all get to be a part. It's not just for preachers. It's not just for worship leaders. It's not just for pastors on a staff. It's not just for deacons or elders or people who who do certain things. It's for everyone who says, God, I just want all that you have. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were filled with the Spirit. This word filled, plerau in the Greek, it's the idea of of being in, in the secular Greek, the wind filling a sail of a ship where it drives the ship along. So all of a sudden, when you're full of the Holy Spirit, what happens is he begins to steer you. He begins to guide you. He begins, sometimes you know he is, other times you find out he did. Filled. It's used in the gospel record of the crowds were filled with awe. In that moment, they were dominated. They were overcome by this sense of awe. To be filled with the Spirit is to be dominated, to be overcome by, by the sense of who he is. And along the way, they began to speak in other tongues. The prayer language is a part of that experience, but it is not the end of the experience, nor, it is, nor is it to be what we seek in the experience. It just comes. The guy came up to one of our pastors and said, hey, I need to talk to you. I, I was in the prayer meeting and I started praying and I didn't understand what I was saying. Is that okay? Yes, that's okay. He's new. It's how it works. Look at it. It says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. They were speaking languages they never studied. People ask, does that happen? Listen, I've got more examples of that, more experiences of that than than we have time for me to tell. At one time where a person was speaking in tongues and a lady who was visiting from Belgium who had left the Catholic faith, was trying to find God and was currently experimenting with Zen Buddhism, heard the person speaking, came up to me after service and said, she said, this was very beautiful. It touched me deeply. She was weeping. I don't understand how this works, but this person 
praising God and she knew the language. She spoke five languages. I said, what language was that? It was a dialect of Egyptian spoken in Upper Egypt. I'm just simply saying he still does it. He still does it. Acts chapter 2 and verse 5. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, so they hear this sound of this tornadic wind, a crowd came together in bewilderment. The word means they were, they were mixed together. They were, they were all mixed up. They couldn't figure it out. They're like, what in the world is going on? Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Verse 7 says, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these all uneducated people? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And do you know what they were saying? They were declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue. What languages were they speaking? Well, verse 9, Parthians, Medes. Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They ask one another, what does this mean? And you know what God has done, and this is just a, a side note for those who have the the maybe a little more of a theological interest in some things. This is the launching of world evangelism. This is a continuation at the cross. Jesus undid what Satan had done and what Adam and Eve had done in the garden. Remember, following the garden, after the flood, the people of the earth came together. God had said, you know, fill the earth. And the people said, no, we don't think we want to do that. We're going to, we're going to stick together and we're going to build us a tower and we're, going to, we're not going to get flooded again because we're going to build a tower that can, so you can't judge us again. And, and there are religious tones to this ziggurat they were building, this tower. And God came down and he looked at it and he said, wow, they're very united. And if as one people they decide to do this, nothing shall be impossible for them. He's talking in terms of their rebellion. So God in his mercy does a very gracious thing. He divides the people into different language groups at Babel. What you have in this listing of the nations is an exact opposite. It's an undoing of Babel. It's taking the nations of the world and bringing them back together as one so that when you come to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 and he's in heaven, there's a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they're wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cry out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. People from every nation, tribe, kindred, now brought together, united with Jesus as King. What makes that possible? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which launches world evangelism. It's a very interesting thing to think about. You'll receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They're hearing this, the people of Jerusalem are watching this and they're perplexed, they don't understand it and guess who's gonna answer the question? The man who 50 days earlier, three times in one evening, denied he knew Jesus. Three times out of fear said, I don't know him, I'm not with him, don't, don't, no, don't put me with him. And Jesus, the Bible says, looked at him. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. But now Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, is a different person. Peter has power. He no longer has a fear of man. Peter has power. He'll do signs and wonders. Peter, in 50 days, is changed. Can I suggest to you, Peter, in one moment, is changed. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, I just want to ask you, have you received that power? How will you know? You'll know when you're willing to share Christ with absolutely anyone, anywhere, anytime. You'll know when signs and wonders are a part of what you believe and part of what you boldly do. Let me just say this, because I realize there are some who have experienced the power of the Spirit, but until those things are true in your life, a fearlessness of men and a boldness to pray and believe and see signs and wonders, then it doesn't matter how much you've spoken in tongues. You're not full. You're on your way to being full. You're just not full. I say that because there are people I dearly love who have settled for less than God intended. Jesus did not say, you'll receive tongues when the Spirit comes upon you. Are tongues a part of it? Certainly. He said, you'll receive power. Tongues are the initial evidence. Power is the ultimate evidence. We need power. Power to witness. Paul said, I didn't come to you with wise and persuasive sounding words. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Boldness to talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime with the grace from the Lord on your life and power to see signs and wonders, mighty miracles happen. We need that power. Closing, I want to share with you a story that Jack Hayford tells in his book, The Beauty of Spiritual Language. It's, it's a book that can help you kind of demystify the baptism in the Holy Spirit a bit. He writes this, it is unquestionably one of the most disarming and remarkable experiences of my life as a Christian. The day began, like so many on my personal calendar, getting onto an airplane to go speak somewhere. I'd hardly seated myself when a well-dressed man in a business suit took his seat beside me. I greeted the man and a casual conversation began. I had detected a Southwestern accent to his voice and asked if he were from the South. His response was not quite embarrassed, but he was slightly apologetic. I hastened to assure him that my observation was positive, that I enjoyed all flavors of Southern drawls. To which he responded, you know, it's a funny thing, but I guess I've always been inclined to feel awkward about my speech. I was raised in Oklahoma and my mother was a full-blooded Indian of the Kiowa tribe. When I started school, I was still limited in my English and I think I still feel kind of embarrassed. And that goes back to when kids used to make fun of me in school. 
That's when it happened. Hayford writes, the instant he spoke those words, another set of words whispered in my heart. Speak to him in tongues. It happened so quickly and the prompting was so unsettling in its implications. I simply let the thought register in my mind but took no immediate action. My mind was now operating on two tracks. On the one, I was continuing the conversation with this gentleman, let's call him Bill, but on the other, I was trying to assess the strange, nearly frightening prompting I had received. I knew the voice, and I understood what had been said. What I didn't know, however, was why in the world God would give me such an assignment, and how in the world could I fulfill it without seeming like a total and complete idiot? The result was that I simply allowed our conversation to continue without any effort on my part at steering it. He was a civil engineer, and as we talked, I discovered the diverse projects he'd been involved in in some especially exotic locations. When he mentioned having recently completed a project in Israel, I responded by explaining I'd been in the Holy Land myself only a few months before. So what Jack tried to do, and I'm going to shorten the story here, tried to share Christ with him, offered to give him a New Testament living Bible, but the man declined saying, that's very kind of you, Jack, but frankly, I don't think I'd read it. Like I said, I'm not much of a believer. Hayford goes on and says this, I smiled and expressed my understanding of his position, and I turned the conversation to other things which kept the moment from becoming awkward for him. After a while, our breakfast concluded. We both turned to reading what we had brought with us, but I had a problem, that voice. The Lord prompted me by his Holy Spirit had given me a clear directive almost an hour before that had been so clear, speak to him in tongues. I mused over the prompting I'd received, wanting to stand erect before the Almighty and shout, speak to him in tongues, sure, that's easy for you to say, but what about me sitting here at 35,000 feet, ending up looking like a religious kook? About 30 minutes later, Bill laid down the book he'd been reading, and I took a course of action which I felt God's wisdom was showing me. Bill, I said, I've been sitting here with the most curious thought. I wonder, I hesitated, I wonder, you know, quite a long time ago, I was taught some words in a language I don't know. And thinking about your familiarity with your native Kiowa Indian tongue, just out of curiosity, I wondered if you would mind if I said some of those words just on a chance that you might recognize their meaning. Sure, he responded. Go ahead. I looked away from his face. My eyes focused on the upholstery pattern on the back of the seat in front of him, and in a conversational tone, I began to speak in my spiritual language. I'd hardly begun when it seemed like I turned a linguistic corner and I heard myself speaking a language unlike any I'd ever heard in prayer before. The total length of all I spoke was approximately the length of this paragraph. I stopped and looked at Bill. His response was immediate and businesslike. That's a pre-Kiowan language from our Kiowa Indian tongue. I don't know all the words you spoke, but I know the idea they express. I could hardly believe what he was saying. I was so overwhelmed, yet totally reserved in my outward demeanor. What are they about, I asked. Well, he gestured in an upward fashion with his hand. It's something about a light coming down 
from above. It was a Holy Spirit setup, and I recognized what I was to say. In the remaining moments, Jack Hayford led Bill to the Lord. Listen. What we're talking about is a, a supernatural experience, a supernatural existence. What we're talking about is something the Lord wants to do in you personally, but something He's doing in the church corporately. Back in, I think it was 2002 or 2003, there was a, a godly, godly professor at Central Bible College. Her name was Dr. Opal Redden. Some of you will know of her. She and her husband had pastored in Arkansas for years, and when he passed away, she went to graduate school, and they went on and got her doctorate and taught at CBC. She was known as, as just a tremendous teacher, but an incredible uh, follower of Christ, looked angelic if you ever were to see her. She was just like an angel. And she came out to, she made an appointment to come see me in September, it was in the fall of 2002 or 2003, I'm not sure which it was. And she came and she said, Pastor, I have a word for you from the Lord. And I said, great. I said, what is it? She said, um, God's going to pour his spirit out on James River Church, on James River. That's the way she said it. And I said, oh, that'd be great. And I'm sure she looked at me like, you knucklehead. You know, I mean, so I was like, okay. Awesome. She said, no, you don't understand. From the front to the back, from the left to the right. He's going to pour a spirit out. It's a very interesting thing. At the time I thought about it, I thought, well, that'd be, that'd be awesome. I don't really know what that means. I think today I do. I don't know what God's going to do. I just know this, he's the one who's doing it, that what's happening is nothing I've manufactured, I couldn't. But there's a stirring in Debbie and I that's been going for a long, long time. That's changed how we live, that's changed how we do life. I've talked about it some on Wednesday nights. God is doing something, but he wants to do something in you. He wants to fill you full of his Holy Spirit. For some of you, that'll be in a service with you just receive. You just receive just as you're worshiping God, you become so, as one man said, so full of God, you don't have room for anything else. For others of you, you have so many conscious objections and hurdles that he's gonna have to do it while you're asleep so that he can have his way with you. <laughs> and you'll wake up speaking in tongues. <laughs> but he wants to fill you full of the Holy Spirit.